0: Are the two biggest reasons for life, you know, and I can't have either of them. I mean, and obviously, I I became very depressed about that, and um, I've and I still struggle with that, and on the same token you know i i was depressed about that and then all of a sudden i started being just overcome by these washes of anxiety that somehow it was all a lie that you know, it was almost a paranoia that the doctors had just showed me these photos but they weren't real and they were just trying to shut me up and that all, you know all these things everything was a lie and that i just totally fabricated this whole thing and that i don't have endometriosis and i never had my appendix out and none of it was true and that they thought I was a malingerer and you know I started to have this like depressive paranoid episode almost where I was like none of this is real I've done this to myself because I was so convinced that that's what people thought.
1: Hey there and welcome to In Sickness and In Health a podcast about chronic illness, disability, medical traumas and everyday uncomfortable healthcare experiences. My name is Carry Gale. I'm not a doctor or a medical professional I'm just a person and a patient who really wants to talk about this stuff more. Nothing said on this show should ever be considered medical advice. If you're experiencing a medical issue, please seek qualified medical help. I know the system sucks, but I do wish you a lot of luck. Every person is different, even within disease groups, so none of my guests should ever be regarded as official representatives or spokespersons for their conditions. Please respect their very personal choices, and unless they ask for it, please don't make suggestions about treatments or lifestyle changes. Unsolicited medical advice is almost never not annoying. In today's episode, I talk to Abby Norman, a writer from Maine who lives with endometriosis. We talk about her experience with the condition, how difficult it can be to diagnose, having others value her fertility and the satisfaction of her male sexual partners above her own health and quality of life, and the book deal she just signed to write about it. You can find Abby on Twitter at NotAbbyNormal and read some of her other writing at medium.com slash Her book will be called Flare, and it will be published by Nation Books at some point in the next couple of years. We'll keep you posted. As always, I'll link to her work and more information about endometriosis and menstrual health in the show notes. If you want more from in sickness and in health, check out insicknesspod.com and follow us on social media at insicknesspod. I'm really trying harder to keep most of the episodes under or about an hour because I know people are short on time, and longer episodes can be hard on people with cognitive disabilities. So this episode picks up Abby's story a few years into her experience with endometriosis. If you're interested in hearing about the onset and first couple of years, check out this week's bonus episode that is about 30 minutes. I sound pretty bad because of a silly problem with my microphone that isn't really worth explaining, but luckily Abby does most of the talking and she sounds pretty good. Thank you so much to everyone who was so sweet to me about last week's episode In case you missed it, I talked about my own experience with premenstrual dysphoric disorder, or PMDD, which is a very ridiculous, but also very serious version of PMS. I was really nervous to put myself out there like that, especially about a topic that is so stigmatized, but the response I've gotten has been really heartwarming. I'm so sorry so many of you have dealt with period problems too, but I am in very good company. These are issues that don't get talked about enough, and I want to continue the conversation about menstrual health. Like Abby and I talk about in today's episode, our menstrual cycle takes up a huge part of our lives and we're not supposed to talk about it? Nonsense. Let's keep talking. If you're having symptoms you suspect may be related to your menstrual cycle, of course, talk to your doctor about it. But if you don't already, tracking your periods and symptoms is something that you can start doing right now that will help you and your doctor get a better picture of your menstrual health. There are a number of great apps available to smartphone users, or you can do it the old-fashioned way in a notebook or planner. The better you understand your body and the more data you can take to your doctor, the better your chances are at getting a diagnosis and hopefully finding some treatments. Although, when it comes to women's health issues, treatments in general leave a lot to be desired. Endometriosis is a condition that affects 1 in 10 women of reproductive age, and, like so many women's health issues, is still very poorly understood, wildly underdiagnosed, and of course, totally underfunded. Like all menstrual health issues, endometriosis does not only affect women, but can affect anyone with a uterus, whether they identify as a woman or not. With endometriosis, tissue similar to the lining of the uterus that bleeds each time you get your period, which is called the endometrium, actually travels outside of the uterus to other areas of the body. Among many other symptoms, this can cause severe pain, scarring, and adhesions that can basically glue your organs together. The condition can cause a number of serious complications in the pelvic organs and wherever else in the body the tissue travels. Endometrial lesions most often develop in the pelvic cavity on the female reproductive organs I talked about in last week's episode, the ligaments holding them in place, the other pelvic organs, and the spaces between them. Endometrial lesions have also been documented in other areas of the body as well, and in rare cases have traveled as far as the brain. The only way to definitively diagnose endometriosis is through exploratory surgery. Which, in my opinion, for a medical condition so common, is totally bananas. And getting a diagnosis or not can come down to your doctor's ability and knowledge in looking for and excising lesions or the endometrial cysts that can develop called endometriomas. If the errant endometrial tissue is not fully removed, as so often it is not, it will continue to bleed and cause problems. Many with endometriosis remain undiagnosed for years because of the stigma surrounding menstrual health and the lack of knowledge among medical professionals. And as Abby talks about, having a diagnosis doesn't necessarily mean much. Abby brings up something that many women with unexplained chronic pain, especially pelvic pain, are often told by doctors who have reached the limit of their knowledge that the pain she is experiencing is some psychological manifestation of childhood sexual trauma. This same message also dominates the lay literature about pelvic pain. An upcoming episode of Insickness and In Health will feature part two of my conversation with Sirena, my guest from episode 13. We'll be talking about the link between physical stress and illness and her research on inflammatory markers in adults who have experienced early life stress. We talk about why blaming sick people for something that may or may not have happened to them a long time ago is unproductive and doesn't address patients' current physical needs. I believe Cyrena is defending her dissertation this week, so let's all send her excellent, excellent PhD vibes this week. Abby first realized something was wrong very suddenly while she was a sophomore at Sarah Lawrence College. With the help of scholarships and grants, she'd moved to the campus just north of New York City from Maine, having been emancipated from her parents at the age of 16. During what she has since dubbed the worst shower ever, she had an acute onset of lower abdominal and pelvic pain and spent the next few weeks in and out of the hospital. Her health quickly declined to the point that she had to take a leave of absence from Sarah Lawrence and was eventually forced to drop out and forfeit the aid that enabled her to rebuild her life at school. You can hear her talk about all of this in her own words in today's bonus episode. Early on, after her pain had started and she'd returned to Maine, she'd had exploratory surgery, which found an endometrioma at the junction of her left fallopian tube and ovary. The cyst was drained but not removed. Because of its location, the doctor was concerned about preserving Abby's fertility, and Abby experienced no improvement in her symptoms after surgery. The doctor who performed the procedure was not a specialist and gave Abby little information more than a diagnosis of endometriosis. Over the next couple of years, Abby went on to the revolving door of doctors and treatments that so many of us living with chronic conditions are familiar with. In this episode, we pick up Abby's story about three years after her experience with endometriosis first started. She was now working in the records department of a hospital and spending her lunch breaks in the medical library, combing through gynecological textbooks, trying to learn about her pain and what could be done about it. The job was just the right fit for that time in her life, as it afforded her stability, good health insurance, and a short elevator ride to the emergency room, if necessary. At a certain point, she had learned enough to know when things really took a turn for the worst and that she needed to really advocate for herself to get the medical attention she needed.
0: So I started to think, geez, maybe, you know, maybe this is a bigger deal than I thought. Like, maybe I'm not crazy for one thing. You know, Mm -hmm. I've been to these doctors and they're like, you're just making this up. Or, you know, I had one doctor say to me, you know, you probably were molested as a kid and your body is trying to to handle it by, you know, giving you the psychosomatic pain.
1: Oh, goodness.
0: I mean, and, you know, and I remember saying... you know, that's so like demeaning on so many levels. I mean, that's that because it also is implying that somehow, like somehow this is my body, like not being able to work on emotional stress, of which I had a lot, Mm -hmm. you know, of course I did. And and anybody in the situation would. But I mean, it was so baffling to me. And so I had really taken that in and, and tried to just work through it. And you know, talk myself out of it was the big thing. Talk myself out of it. Got to talk myself out of it. And so when this happened, this, this flare up of the, of the illness and the, in the pain, I, I thought, you know, geez, maybe, maybe there's something really bad going on and, you know, and maybe I'm, maybe I'll die. Maybe it'll, you know, maybe I have sepsis, maybe I'm, you know, whatever it is, you know, it just felt bad enough that I wanted to, to do something about it. And I was in the emergency room, and the doctor was behind, and you know there were a few people he was going to see ahead of me, and the nurse started to put an IV in, and I said, I don't want you to give me any painkillers until I've seen the doctor, because I need to be able to articulate the pain to, to him and, and be able to explain it, and if you, if you give me painkillers right now, I'm not going to be able to do that, and, I, and, and she said, well, do you like being in pain? Do you like do you want to be in pain? and I was like, "No, i don't i you know and she said well didn't didn't you come here to have your pain relieved and i said no i'm I'm trying to figure out what it is, and I mean no, I don't like being in pain, but i have this is chronic and and now it's worse, and I think something's really wrong, and I need to be able to articulate it right down to very you know specifically where it is and to be able to characterize it." And, you know, your, your lame ass pain scale, like that's not enough. I can't just tell you, oh, it's an eight and a half right now. And, you know, that doesn't give you the kind of information that I think you're going to need to diagnose this. And, you know, that was a real turning point for me and nothing actually did come of that, that ER visit. It was just another, you know, I was there for like, you know, 14 hours or whatever. And then I got sent home and I was sick for a couple of days and I didn't go back to work. And then finally it just kind of, whatever it was, you know, kind of suppressed itself again. And, you know, I went another year and a half to two years before I went, um, with, armed with a lot of research, which had been really, really kicked off by that experience. Um, I went back to a general surgeon that I had seen because at first they thought maybe I had like, um, like an intestinal parasite or something. Mm -hmm. And so they had referred me, but he said, well, before I do anything, I want to give you a course of antibiotics. And then I like never saw him again. That was like, I was going through this phase where doctors were referring me for like, (laughs) basically like what they called vaginal physical therapy. And I was like, okay, that sounds fake, but okay. (laughs) You know? And I went through this phase of having to just do all this weird shit that they asked me to do, even though, none of it had anything to do with what my issue was. And, you know, so I got, you know, I, I got away from, from his office, like, cause I just kept getting referred to all these other things because surgery was such a, you know, like, like, Oh, we're only going to do it if we have to kind of thing. Right. Um, but I went back to him and I said, look, here's my, here's my thing. I've got, I've done the research. I've suffered through this for like four and a half years. Um, I'm really sick and I'm really afraid that you know whatever's whatever's going on here is either going to do permanent damage to my body or it's going to kill me or something like you know it can't be nothing it just can't be and i had said you know i think that i know that there's some endometriosis somewhere in there but i haven't had it properly looked at i haven't had it visualized for like 4 years so it could be worse i don't know but I also know that there's this whole concept of, like, chronic appendicitis, and I also know that women with endometriosis, more than you would ever imagine, end up having issues with their appendix, whether they get it and, you know, they get lesions on their appendix or, you know, they end up with levels of inflammation that end up um, mimicking it. I mean, they... I've met so many women who've had co- like concurrent endometriosis and appendicitis. And I'm sure that there's a like a link that we just haven't put together yet, but mm-hmm. I was so convinced and I had all this research and I had made like graphs and I was referencing like all of these academic studies. And I just remember I was sitting in his office and he looked at me and he goes, you're either brilliant or you are the most educated hypochondriac mm-hmm. I have ever met. And I was like, okay, well, you know, I was like, you're, and I said, and you can prove it. You can prove either way. If you go in and do this, you're either going to find something or you're not. And if you're going to go in there, I think at this point, it's probably valid enough for you to just take my appendix out prophylactically, because then I'll have to shut up about it. If you don't think that there's something actually wrong with it, you know, this is like a chance for you to say, I've done everything I can do and I can't treat you anymore. And he bought that. He was like, you know, that's true. He's like, if I do it, then if I find nothing, then I'm done. I can't, you know, there's nothing else I can do for you, but I can say I did everything I could. You know, that kind of thing. And as, as kind of like hard as that was to stomach, it it was definitely like I spoke to his sensibilities as a surgeon and as somebody working in a healthcare system that values um profit over over patients and so that really I mean to him that was like that's a pretty good deal and so I just remember waking up in recovery and immediately I felt the sensation of something having been removed Mm -hmm. and it's such it was such a bizarre feeling just that that sort of very bizarre sensation of you get so used to something being a part of your body and being a part of your life And then all of a sudden it's not, it was so strange. And so I, I, I was coming to and realizing this and I looked at the nurse in recovery and I said, you know, what did they take out? And she said, well, you were right. You know, you were actually right down to the very specific rare thing that was wrong. Like that was like, you, you completely were right. And I was like, I didn't even really care at that point that I was, (laughs) I was just really relieved. And he was a little bit, uh, What's the word? He wasn't, like, ashamed of himself, but he was kind of, like, I th- he just wanted to get out of the room really
1: quickly. Mm-hmm. He was
0: like, okay, here's what happened, and bye. Like, I don't want to sit here and actually, like, have to put my foot in my mouth. Um, and the outcome was that he had never seen this before. He'd never seen appendicitis that was chronic and... Um, being influenced by like systemic inflammation. And I have pictures of it. It's pretty grotesque, Um, but it's fun to whip out at parties. (laughs) I'm like, check this shit out. Like, and the fact that it was in my body like that for such a long time, I mean, it was basically like slowly poisoning everything. It was just very angry and gnarled and um it it definitely he said he said i've never seen this before i've never read about this before so i have no idea what your long-term digestive health is going to be like he's like you know this this might solve some issues there or it might not um and you've got a whole other like concurrent inflammatory process so i really have no idea but you know he said i've done my job so good luck figuring it out um
1: (laughs) don't you love surgeons
0: I know. I was like, Oh my God. Okay. Um, Although I do remember him saying at my follow-up appointment that he kind of was tempted to write a study about it, like do a study. And I was like, well, excuse me, but I was the one who did all the research (laughs) here. So I would have to be co-author on that study. And he was kind of like, but, you know, because I was, I had brought this all to his attention. And he just confirmed it because, you know, if I could have done the operation on myself, I probably would have. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, so, I mean, then I started this whole second part of this journey because I had long-term issues from that. I still was trying to figure out how the endometriosis fit into things. And I had to start to parse out, okay, well, what was the, like the appendicitis sort of um, symptomology and what am I, you know, we take that out of the equation what's left and how are these things going to be dealt with, you know, during some of this, when I, especially when I was trying to figure out, well, what does it even mean that I have endometriosis and what is this even, you know, during those initial years, I was in my first long-term relationship, um, and I lost my virginity. And of course I was in the school of, you know, young women who were told that sex was going to hurt and Mm -hmm. that was just part of it. And, you know, I in some ways I'm realizing how antiquated a line of thought that is but it startles me how many of my peers um and even even the girls that I mentor who are quite a bit younger than I am are also still being given this as a rationale they're told that a their periods should hurt and always will hurt and that's just how it is mm-hmm. and that sex is painful um so when I, you know, in the first few months of my life as a sexual being, uh, I just assumed the pain was normal mm-hmm. and I didn't necessarily bring it to the attention of any of the doctors that I was working with because I was under the impression that it, it, that was just life. Right. <laughs> but the years went by and it never got better. and. I'll tell you that once I started saying to my gynecologist or to these doctors I was working with, you know, now I have this information about how this is impacting my sex life and how this is impacting my sexual health. Because prior to this, when I was a virgin, I didn't – I just didn't have this information. I couldn't have told you how it was going to impact these things because I hadn't experienced it. And now I am. And here's some more data for you to work with. Mm -hmm. And they always – just brushed it off. They said I was frigid. They said I was just nervous. They told me to relax. They said, oh, you should have, like, this is where they said, okay, go have some vaginal physical therapy. They'll dilate your, your, you know, vaginal canal. And I was like,
1: which I'll say can be helpful for specific conditions. But if that's not actually what, what your problem is, that's not necessarily going to help.
0: Right. And like, what I kept saying to them was that would be totally valid if the pain was at that penetration in like at the entrance to my vagina and it's mm-hmm. not, it's up in my uterus. It's in my lower pelvis and abdomen. Sometimes I can like, you know, feel it in my back. And you know, I, I was like, it's way higher than that, <laughs> you know? And they would just be like, Oh, well that's not like a thing. And I was like, really? I'm like, I love that. I, I,
1: Cause I've been told several times that something that I'm experiencing is not a thing. And I'm like, What is that supposed to mean? Because it clearly is a thing. I'm experiencing it. Right. Why don't you care?
0: I thought it was so interesting that there was only one type of sexual pain or, Mm -hmm. you know, that was valid to them. Not to say that it's not valid because it's absolutely valid, but there are other ways that you can have pain sexually. And sometimes, you know, they would be like, well, try a different position or try this or try that. And I'm like, it doesn't it doesn't actually make a difference what i do and and that would be like the first thing that y- you would try because once you start realizing how much pain you're in you're going to try okay. to do anything to uh, alleviate that okay. and the other thing was um you know they would say okay well you know what about you know it does basically the conversation was like this they were like does your partner have a big dick and i was like well i mean i've only ever seen one and i'm i'm guessing it's pretty average, but I don't know because I don't have any comparison. I said, but for my vagina personally, uh, it does seem to be a bit of a problem. And they would be like, okay, well, you know, you know, try like, you know, doing this or like, you know, be in this position and then it won't be like so much of an issue for you. And I was like, okay, well, at least now maybe I feel like you don't think it's entirely my fault. And I never felt like they really took my pain seriously until I started bringing this boyfriend to these appointments with me. And when he started to say, you know, I'm not getting sexually satisfied in this relationship. Like my needs aren't getting met. And, you know, (sighs) dang, all of a sudden it was like a crisis. They were like, oh my God, we have to fix this. And I was like, okay, so I've not been able to enjoy sex basically ever, but that wasn't valid. And it came to a head because I would not want to have sex. And he was, mad and you know and then i ended up you know at one point um during all of this when i had that surgery that presented its own challenges because then i was in the post surgery phase and i couldn't put out and he said to me well for the next like 6 to 8 weeks i should be able to just go find somebody else to get my needs met with because you can't satisfy me Yikes. and that was like valid that was like, like even his parents were like well that's kind of valid and i was like really Like, now you're telling me that not only is my pain and my sexual experience not valid, but that I'm to blame here and that this is my fault. And I have, I just went through the surgery and I'm trying to recover and I'm trying to do the best I can. I want, you know, I want to go back to work. You know, I want to try to get my life back if I can. And yet the focus is still on like, here's all the stuff that Abby's like ruining with her illness, quote unquote, you know, and- It was such a, it was a really awful time in my life because I started to think, you know, I'm not a good employee, I'm not a good friend, I'm not a good partner, and it all comes down to this health thing, this, whatever this health issue is, whatever this condition is, it's, you know, impacted every element of my life. It impacted my ability to eat, it impacted my my sleeping and how I drive and how I socialize or don't socialize. And, you know, when my, when my nephew was born and, you know, he was a baby and I wanted to hold him, but, you know, hoisting anything that weighs more than like my dog who's tiny, you know, pulls on things and it hurts. And it was just like, I felt like nothing went untouched. Mm -hmm. And that whole experience with, you know, just being, being perceived as being such a sexual failure catapulted me into this absolute resentment of my femininity and my body. I was like I was so angry and almost like with a malevolence like there was just this complete disgust with my uterus and you know my I mean anything that was pertaining to my experience as a biological female. I was so mad and disappointed and like resentful of it. And I don't know. I mean that it's probably been 2 years now since that was going on, but I still have moments where I feel like that.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, especially since after that relationship finally broke up and I I did have sex with somebody else and it was the exact same story. This this man could not have been any different from my previous partner. And I wanted so bad to have it end up that it had just been this guy and if the problems were just because of this relationship and i was going to have a completely different experience and i just remember after that i was like oh my god it's not going to be different because there there are these things that are wrong in my body that medicine can't seem to fix or even address i can't even have a productive conversation about my female reproductive system about my feminine health about my my womanhood i can't have any productive conversations so it didn't even matter the partner. I was going to have this problem and I was not going to be able to enjoy sex or food. You know, two of the, like, two things in life. (laughs) The only reasons
1: for living. Right? Like,
0: here are the two biggest reasons for life, you know, and I can't have either of them. I mean, and obviously I I became very depressed about that. And, um, And I still struggle with that. And on the same token, you know, I... I was depressed about that, and then all of a sudden, I started being just overcome by these washes of anxiety that somehow it was all a lie, that it was almost a paranoia, that the doctors had just showed me these photos, but they weren't real. And they were just trying to shut me up. And, that all, you know, all these things, everything was a lie. And that I just totally fabricated this whole thing. And that I don't have endometriosis. And I never had my appendix out. And none of it was true. And that they thought I was a malingerer. And, you know, I started to have this, like, depressive, paranoid episode, almost, where I was like, none of this is real. I've done this to myself because I was so convinced that that's what people thought.
1: Well, you have, you explicitly been told that multiple times over. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I mean so much that then I started to think, well, maybe I was molested as a kid. I had a very, very strange situation as a child in my, in my nuclear family that ultimately led to me you know, leaving home and getting emancipated and I had been a victim of of very specific kinds of abuse, but maybe there was way more that I didn't know about and how was I ever going to even tackle that and, you know, what would that mean? Because certainly that's not like, that's not like, uh, it doesn't lack validity, but it would change the whole thing and it would be a whole different set of issues and it became so complex that I I was so lost in it for like, I feel like I lost months of my life because I was just in it entirely. Um, And it didn't help that I was so physically exhausted that, I mean, when you're in bed or in the tub for like days on end and you don't see anybody except your therapist for three weeks, you really start to lose, you know, your footing on... Yeah, you do. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and um, I've I've been really lucky because actually I've seen the same therapist since I was 16. So it's been like seven or eight years. And I... And when you know when people want to talk about you know chronic chronic illness and and the, the the emotional and spiritual and sort of mental health element of that, I really lucked out with her and and I hope that everybody at some point will have the chance to find somebody and connect with them the way that I did with her and she met me at a point in my life where none of these issues existed mm-hmm. and she was one of the she is still one of the only people who knew me before during, and after this. Most of the people in my life now never knew me before they 've never known me any other way but this and she 's one of those people that has seen the whole process, and so her perspective on it has been so incredibly important to me and you know i and she actually is um a really big part of my book because the work that I did with her um, kind of helped me to be my own case manager in a way Mm
1: -hmm. in terms
0: of my health um, and, and to process it all as it was happening and try to keep myself um, present enough to advocate for myself in the the hospital out of necessity.
1: Because I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's hard enough when you're in pain and you might be, you know, drugged up on goodness knows what, but Also, when you have to go so far out of your way to advocate for yourself, it's exhausting in and of itself.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I I always say to people, you know, even if you have a lot of social support and you've got a family who's in the hospital with you, it doesn't make that sort of need to self-advocate and, and need for actionable information from your healthcare care providers. It doesn't make that process any easier. It's exhausting yeah. to have to do that no matter what situation you're in. I think I was certainly in a unique place because I was trying to do it all myself while being a patient, you know, and being really sick. But I think even in the best of times, it's really, really stressful. And the yeah. way that we communicate with our healthcare providers or don't communicate and the way that they don't communicate and coordinate with each other, um, is one of the, one of the most profoundly dysfunctional aspects of the healthcare system. And we're all victimized by it. For sure. Yeah. I
1: mean, full disclosure, uh, part of the reason that I was so interested to talk to you and to talk to people about pelvic pain in general is like, I am in the middle of figuring out as I like to call it, pelvic pain of mysterious origin.
0: Yes. (laughs)
1: because i've had it for three years and because it's not you know i've had a couple of transvaginal ultrasounds and oh, it's right obviously now. not <laughs> acute appendicitis so no one gives a shit like mm-hmm. it's it's not novarian system it's not acute appendicitis so it must be nothing right um and it's really frustrating as, as i've like investigated it further on my own and learning more about endometriosis and how not diagnosed it is in so many people yeah
0: well here's the thing about that one of the women i'm interviewing for my book has had endometriosis for she's quite a bit older than i am and she's had endometriosis for at least 30 years and i mean so much of our treatment experience was parallel to one another despite there being this 30 year period in between us and you would think that things would have Progress haven't. There's for you know, you look at the statistics on how many women conservatively saying how many women probably have it, and the amount of funding
1: is basically a pittance.
0: I mean, they get, I think they, well,
1: women's health in general does not have funding, and and we don't even know how women's reproductive system is supposed to work because there's never been any studies, you know, figuring out what is normal Um, because the only things that get funded are studies on pathological problems, which is important. We need to also be studying those as well, but we don't even have a baseline of like what's supposed to happen.
0: Absolutely. And I think that this issue of not having the sort of like baseline comparison is really detrimental to all of the all of the work that they are trying to do. Because true that, you know, we all have slightly different anatomy and the very, you know, because of like how many children we have or don't have. I mean, there are some variations, but we need to at least understand what's supposed to happen, which we don't. And I mean, of course, when endometriosis comes up, the first conversation is always about preserving fertility. And to some extent, you know, even... Having those conversations, you lose time anyway because these women aren't getting diagnosed. I was very fortunate that I was diagnosed as soon as I was. And a lot of that was because of my own insistence Mm -hmm. um, because I had some knowledge that I think a lot of women don't have because we don't have these conversations. I mean, even amongst ourselves. Right. I mean, I always say I am like a, I'm like a menstrual Sherpa for people. Like, <laughs> I just bring up this conversation whenever and wherever I can, because the more you talk about it, I can't tell you how many times I open it up and women start to go, oh yeah, well, yeah, my periods are kind of bizarre or my periods have changed recently. And it's like, these are all
1: really, really important, important things. things.
0: <laughs> yes. and, you know, the other thing I did want to mention, you were just talking about having like transvaginal ultrasounds and you know whatever they see or they don't see that enormous cyst that i had that they mm-hmm. found never showed up on an ultrasound of course i don't know how they missed it and i remember her saying to me i don't know how we missed that it was <laughs> huge but never showed up the appendicitis thing never showed up mm-hmm. and you know there's so much about like imaging that like if you have it and it does find something that's very acute like for you know if someone's having a stroke or if somebody's have has an aneurysm like Imaging can be vital for things that are acute, but, you know, some of these chronic issues that even can can have different presentations day to day. I mean, mm-hmm. anybody with a chronic health issue will tell you that you have good days and bad days, and by good days, it's usually like, you know, meh days. Right. But, like, you know, it does, and I think that that corresponds to these sort of physical and physiological changes that we don't know how to interpret yet and we don't know how to test for. And I actually have done a lot of independent research specifically related to endometriosis because one of the mysterious elements of this is that I would always get uh, like blood work done. You know, you get like what they call like a CBC. So you have like your white blood cell count, your red blood cell count. And there's a certain kind of white blood cell that was always elevated for like no discernible reason. There's not any, like these blood tests would be basically normal except for this one thing Mm -hmm. that was always elevated. And, you know, they're, they're core, they correspond to inflammation and they correspond to allergies, um, which is, you know, histamine reaction, which is inflammation. And I mean, I'm not saying that it could potentially be a marker for endometriosis, but it might be. I mean, if there's no discernible ideology for that, but you know that there's an, something that is a that has a definite inflammatory process that's active, I mean you got to kind of wonder, and you know these are the things that I couldn't pay anybody to talk about or to care about, even if we could prove it, it you know what still they don't know what to do about it mm-hmm. we don't have any real i mean other than like there are some quote unquote treatments for endometriosis, but I can tell you, a lot of the women I know who have either had surgery or they've been on Lupron, you know, they've not had good experiences. And they've been, in some ways, I know a few women in particular I'm thinking of, of I've talked to about Lupron. And ultimately, I decided not to do it because of all of these experiences that I that I heard about with these women who were saying... And just
1: for people who don't know, uh, can you just talk a little bit about what Lupron is?
0: Yeah, um, Lupron is like... Because so, I mean, actually so much of any quote unquote treatment that's involved for endometriosis or actually like ovarian cysts, it, it involves basically putting somebody into menopause because there's this whole theory that, you know, if you don't have a certain level of estrogen circulating, which it is an estrogen dependent disease, you know, if you can suppress these processes, then you're going to suppress the illness, which we know isn't true because there are women who've had complete hysterectomies that still have endometriosis. Oh, is that Really? Yeah, because endometriosis can grow anywhere. It doesn't yeah. only exist in the reproductive tract. It can: now, ex-
1: Is that a complete hysterectomy, ovaries and everything, or do they still have their ovaries? These
0: are women who have had uterus, ovaries, and fallopian tubes wow. removed, and they still have endometriosis. And I've read studies of women who have lesions in their lungs, who have lesions that have traveled to their eyes and their brains. I mean, it's, it's tissue, and it, mm-hmm. and it proliferates in the same manner, or they think it does, in the way that, like, cancer does, which mm-hmm. is that it spreads and implants and bleeds in response to a hormone cycle. But if you already have the lesions and they're active and they're scarring and they're creating inflammation, even when you take the sort of the, what you think is the dependent process out of the equation, unless you go in and start, you know, removing all of these like satellite lesions, you're, you've not cured the problem. And so for, you know, for me being 24, you know, even if I wanted to have a hysterectomy and go into menopause at 24 or 25 Doctors
1: are not Jonesing to do that. Yeah, because, and you better believe your insurance company isn't either.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. They're and you know, and and so with Lupron, a lot of what happens is you get the injection, but then you have to deal with a lot of times the hormonal side effects of mm-hmm. basically what what menopause might feel like, except that it's like a forced menopause. Right, so it's and very sudden, too. Yes, very sudden, and depending on what you're. Underlying symptoms are already like, um, it can make things a hell of a lot worse. And so the question then is for me, the question was always, okay, but in these studies, has Lupron been shown to actually, you know, just take away some of the symptoms or is it, does it actually stall the disease process at all? And I never get a clear answer about that. So I've been very wary of these things that are touted as treatments because the other thing that I'm always told by gynecologists is well when you get pregnant it'll go away and I'm like okay first of all you're telling me over and over again that I'm probably going to be infertile because of this disease yet you're telling me that if I get pregnant it's going to go away and you know yet also like that's definitely not true (laughs) exactly no that's complete just to be very clear that is a a complete lie and and you could ask a number of women who have actually been able to get pregnant and have a child that what happens is you may experience a suppression of the symptoms while you're pregnant. But as soon as you have the baby, the symptoms come back and you have a newborn baby to take care of, which is exhausting for the, you know, for the healthiest of people who are totally prepared for that. So you, you've just added something, you know, into your life. That is probably, even though it's a wonderful thing, and, and you know being a parent is and i 've seen this firsthand with my with my friend and her and her son that it is a wonderful thing it's also extremely stressful when you have a very small baby and a toddler to run around after. Um, my mother was chronically ill when I was growing up and and it was it was actually impossible for her to 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 do what she needed to do as a parent um, in large part because of her health struggles and you know that was really now i realized how how affected i was by that as a child i mean you know you learn to internalize that and feel guilty for it and on one level you know it's not your fault but it's really hard to to look at somebody trying to take care of you just become progressively more and more exhausted you know it's hard to not internalize it as being partially something that you're responsible for because you exist. And, you know, I think that as I've gotten older, I've, I've rationalized that, you know, it wasn't my fault, um, that she was sick and she was sick long before I ever showed up. But I'm not going to deny the fact that having a child was very hard on her and that she was not prepared for it. And I know at this point in my life, I'm 24. She had me at 24, I could not parent a child. Even if I could get pregnant right, right. now, I, there's absolutely no way I would have the energy to even take care of a child at a very basic level. I mean, it, let alone be somebody who could enjoy parenthood and who could, um, you know, really meet it, your child's I, needs. Yeah, I really, I know I could not do that yeah, because I know that I, I'm I'm in my apartment right now and I'm talking to you and I'm looking around at just, I mean, what a complete mess my life is because I can't even, you know, I have to leave like all my like cereal boxes and things out on the counter Mm -hmm. because it's painful for me to reach up and open a cupboard. And, you know, like these little things that you don't think about until it becomes your whole life to have Mm -hmm. to think about them. And I'm sitting here in a chair with my heating pad. And as soon as we get done, I'm going to go take my second bath of the day because it helps to keep the pain at a manageable level. And I'll have to go take my Zofran before I try to eat anything. I mean, that is just taking care of myself is difficult enough. Mm -hmm. There's so many things about like this whole experience that are still extremely difficult for me to grasp and to fathom. And I have these conversations with people and I try to you know, I try to put a a hopeful spin on it, but I'm very aware of the fact that every year that I've been sick in the nature of the fact that this is a progressive illness, every year gets worse Mm -hmm. and I'm 24 years old now. I don't know where I'm going to be when I'm 30. And, you know, I'm trying to do as much as I can while I have the energy because I don't, you know, I don't know, even if it doesn't necessarily get worse, in the sense that, you know, using these stages of, you know, maybe physically I don't get more lesions or these lesions just stay where they are. I'm going to get more and more exhausted each year that I have to look like Just by
1: the virtue of aging. I mean, just being alive and getting progressively older. I I don't mean to sound very dark about this, but like, we know that physiologically it's all downhill from there. So (laughs) if you have an underlying disease process, you know compounded by just you know natural, natural
0: aging. aging yeah and just the emotional exhaustion of mm-hmm. it too i mean there's always the element of you know here we are we've just hit the new year and for me it's like you know here we go <laughs> another year uh,
1: deductible resets starting all over on your health insurance right, which is the worst thing yeah. Oh, like, yeah. <laughs> By January 5th, I already spent $475. Right, right. My exactly. deductible On an MRI of, uh, of what course, was supposed right. to be my pelvis. But when I looked at the results it was read only for my right hip joint. So oh, even classic. if it did show something, no one actually looked at it, which is, you
0: know, great. that's so interesting because they did that to me as well. Um, they and they actually were supposed to be I, I had thought that the imaging was going to be more, you know, looking at sort of the 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 fascia. But mm-hmm. I ended up walking out one day and realizing that they had x-rayed my hip joint. And I was like, yeah. well, I understand trying to rule out, like, a joint issue. But mm-hmm. at that point, it was pretty clear that, you know, I was having a lot of really weird vaginal bleeding. And I was like, I don't think these things are related to joint pain or, like, bone spurs. But I'm going to – I'll just humor you. Like, we'll, yeah. we'll see. Well, the reason
1: that I really wanted to get uh, an MRI of that area is because I ha- like, I know now that I have a connective tissue disorder and I know that there are ligaments that hold our pelvic organs in place. And, yes. Hey, what if the pain that I'm having has something to do with that connective tissue? Um, or, or what can also happen with endometriosis is that lesions can develop on those ligaments yes Um, absolutely and when this pain first showed up it actually very closely resembled something called round ligament pain which has almost exclusively been written about in pregnant women yes Um, yes and then like at the end of a sentence it will be like and also sometimes endometriosis but never like (laughs) goes into detail about it so you know i'm i'm very concerned that that that's where this problem is originating from and there's there's no way to find that out except for exploratory surgery you know like if my ibs flares that pain flares also but i can have flares of that pain without gi problems right that tells me like hey this is probably not a gi issue
0: yeah and the thing like endo can definitely and and and, you know definitely impacts um Mm -hmm. The bowel, but the thing is, well, I mean, that-
1: your whole pelvis just kind of turns into a cytokine soup, you know? There's yeah, it inflammation
0: does. Going on. soup. Yeah. <laughs> I love that term; that's so apt because it is. And one of the things too is that you know when you start to bring in you know other body systems that could be impacted very that have actually been known to imp- be mm-hmm. impacted by endometriosis, you start getting like things like, oh, well, it's IBS, and you're like, okay, but. You're not actually, like, listening to what I'm saying here. Like, you know, I, I always say that best thing that any any woman can do for herself is to be very, very present in what her periods are like. Mm-hmm. And to, to take a step back from getting too deep into comparing them because I figured out pretty quickly, you know, after I started looking into endometriosis that a lot of things that I thought were normal when I was, like, 14, 15, and 16 we're not. Like I can't tell you how many times, you know, I missed school or, you know, how many people's like couches I bled on mm-hmm. yeah. and, you know, just and I would actually one thing that still happens to me that, to this day um is that during my period, I almost always have like absolutely horrible GI symptoms. Like it would wake mm-hmm. me up in the middle of the night and it would just be like really painful, profound gastro problems and that's something that actually is very almost inextricably linked with endometriosis, especially if it's in if it's in and around your bowel and. Right that's one of those things that, like, how do you ever bring that up to somebody? You know what I mean? For a lot of young women, it's, like, it's bad enough that they're, like, I don't want to talk about bleeding, and I sure as hell don't want to talk about diarrhea, (laughs) like, you know? Mm. And I'm, like, look, let's let's have a productive conversation about how these things interplay, because it's a huge, like, when you think about how many periods you have in your life, especially if you're somebody like me who has, who bleeds for, like, eight days, Mm -hmm. like, that's a lot of your life. Yeah,
1: for last week's episode, I calculated, um, which was, like, just a really Rough calculation. It's yeah,
0: but you can ballpark figure that, yeah. and then you think about like how heavy you bleed and how I'm actually much- extremely
1: lucky, and then I, now that I'm on birth control, I actually oh yeah, that's don't the other bleed thing very too. much at all.
0: I am one of those people who I actually have tried all kinds of birth control in my life, um, mostly because I wanted to find something that did its job, but also could potentially deal with my symptoms. Mm-hmm. I was never particularly successful, although I did have an IUD for a few years. Um, and the nice thing about that was that, you know, I, I didn't have to think too much about it. Um, and it wasn't systemic. Uh, and I actually, I had it removed cause you get to a certain point where you have to have them replaced. And I decided to go completely hormone free for a few years because I'm not sexually active. And, you know, I wanted to just, see what my body's going to do, but I got to keep the IUD, which is pretty cool. So I'm going to make Christmas ornament out of it. (laughs) But, um, I, I actually found that it definitely achieved like a suppression of the the bleeding, Mm -hmm. um, which was really beneficial because, you know, I'm sure that if I go too long without something, I will be anemic again, because I do tend to bleed very heavily, but it's kind of important information to know because, you know, I think that it's natural even if you don't have a reproductive health issue that the, you know, like your periods can change based on where you are in your life cycle and if you have children. So I just think it's always super important to have a baseline for you, like whatever mm-hmm. your baseline is. And since I've had something that's very directly um, a reproductive health issue, one of which was so physical that I wonder if I even can ovulate from that ovary anymore, um you know, I feel like it's time to, to get a new baseline, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: but that involves like suffering through what is a quote unquote normal period for me, um, Mm -hmm. all over again. And, and I think that it's, it's good data to have on, on yourself. Like, I think that it's an important thing to know, but it also just reaffirms for me how reluctant people are to have conversations about periods in general. Mm -hmm. Um, and this whole idea of like, I love that there are some pretty high profile, like, media outlets that talk about like menstrual cups and like the period panties, like trying to bring an awareness to these, you know, that, that for most women, it's a huge part of our lives that we never get to discuss. And that for a lot of us, um, you know, my own like thing about like, I've never been able to use tampons. They've always been problematic Mm -hmm. for me. And so my options have been pretty limited to, Oh my God, I have to wear 18 overnight pads every day of my life. And I'm just going to have to like, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've been in a meeting and I've like pulled a notebook out of my purse and there's been like a panty liner stuck to it. Like, I mean, (laughs) there, there's just this always have to be prepared kind of vibe. Yeah. And you know, But it's like, you know, I would I just always want to have conversations with other women about their periods, because, you know, for me, it's like uh, some of these weird things that happen, like, it'd be great to have that validated. But also, I just think that it's healthy conversation to have. I think,
1: yeah, I mean, you know, the if we continue not to talk about this, which just reinforces the stigma, yeah, really, you know, sets the groundwork for women to live for years with pain that they don't necessarily need to live with, or, you know, to have, Cancer go unchecked, and like a whole host of issues that, like, if we just talked about this stuff, like, uh, it would also maybe, you know, put the impetus on people who allocate funding to yeah. fund research on these issues more, and you know, just a- encouraging women and whoever else happens to own a uterus to just literally own it more. Yeah, you know?
0: absolutely. And to be able to feel like there's a space for them to have the conversation and that you, they don't, because I always feel like, especially when I'm talking to young women, if they, you know, cause I have a, I have a couple of girls I'm thinking of in particular that I mentor and they're like between the ages of like 14 and 17. And they always, if they're going to start a conversation with me about their periods, they kind of like apologize for it first. Yes. And I always stop oh them God. right there. And I'm like, you should never apologize
1: for talking about your health you know like I belong to a lot of online support groups for the various medical conditions that I have and whenever women post about you know something related to menstrual health they'll preface it by saying like oh my god this is so TMI I'm so sorry I'm so, right, sorry. I'm so right. sorry and I'm like girl let's go like it's okay we all deal with this Every month of our lives, well, you know, if, if you get your period regularly. Which yeah, yeah, does, at some but, point or another. <laughs> yeah, like sure. this is something right. that takes up a lot of time and a lot of headspace. And if, if you have period problems, whether it be endometriosis or PMDD or PCOS or any of the other, you know, array of menstrual health issues, it takes up way more space in your life than somebody who just, you know, lightly bleeds for four days and then is over with which I I honestly did not believe that women could have a period and not have horrible PMS until I like, talked yeah, to a yeah. friend of mine and her mom and both of them are like yeah no I've never had PMS and I'm
0: Like what right right and that's so important too to have those conversations because so many young women like they're not having those conversations in the locker room or anything mm-hmm. and you know they have no idea that actually and, and and by by medical standards periods really aren't supposed to hurt the way that we have been that the way that it's been normalized right. for them to hurt that's actually not normal and it's been culturally normalized for us basically i feel like to shut us up about it oh
1: well it's all to shut us up about it like that's every piece every kind of like block of this stigma which there are so many is all about shutting us up about it, you know, keeping us barefoot and pregnant essentially.
0: Yeah, which is again, ex- like, it comes back to this whole like, oh, well, you can cure endometriosis by getting pregnant. Like, no, you can't, mm-hmm. and actually, it can be. Then, if you, but then also by by doing things like that, where you tell a woman like, for me, I started to feel like I was only valued as 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 a potential harbor for oh, yeah. a baby. Yeah. like and it's like you know it 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 was so frustrating for me that like i said before that my you know my pain wasn't valid until it was inconveniencing a man and that they wouldn't even talk to me about trying to address these issues on a physical surgical level until i had gotten to a point where i could deal with the prospect of being infertile and i mean it just it makes you feel kind of it's kind of dehumanizing to be it's very dehumanizing,
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And it's really you know, and it makes me it makes me question you know, am I just valued for my parts? You know what I mean? Which yes. aren't which are
1: it's For the
0: most part, yes. Yeah. I mean, that's so, and this is why I felt like, in terms of this book, there is no holds barred because I'm, I find, I I don't think there's any reason for me to sugarcoat it or to try to use euphemisms to talk about my body. I mean, it's just going to be a very, raw and, and honest conversation about having this body. And I'm sure, and I'm prepared for people saying that it's graphic or for people saying that it's, you know, too much information and that I shouldn't be talking so openly about what sex was feeling like for me at the time or, you know, what my periods were like and that, that information is like offensive to people. I don't, you know, it very well may happen that people feel that way, but there's no way for me to talk about this without just being completely honest about it. And, you know, I don't, to be perfectly honest, I don't have, I'm not really afraid to do it. You know, mm. I just feel like it's, the, like, how could I possibly talk about my life without talking about this? Because it is, it has become my life. And, you know, this is the reality. And, you know, that's for me. I, I just feel like I, every time I've ever written about it on the Internet, I've been my inbox has been inundated with women saying, oh, my God, yeah. that is so validating. Thank you for that. So when you're a woman who's dealing with reproductive health problems that are stigmatized and you also have the mental health component that's stigmatized, you know, well, where the hell are you supposed to go and who are you right. supposed to talk to? I mean, it's it's really overwhelming.
1: Well, so tell me about your book. Um, did you write it already or did you have to like, yeah, shop excellent. around a proposal? How did that whole thing Yeah, so
0: When I actually, when I was at medicine X, I um, I gave a talk at Stanford university in September of last year. And, um, while I was there, basically long story short, somebody who saw it knew somebody who knew somebody and they said, Hey, are you, do you have a literary agent? Do you want, are you interested in writing a book about this? And I was like, um, no and yes. Um, And so, I mean, basically by the time I had basically just flown, I was flying home from California and I was kind of being introduced to an agent. Um, So I got a literary agent in September. Um, We worked on the proposal uh, like middle of October into November. Um, The proposal went to publishers at the end of November. I went to New York and met with them. In December, and then I'm in the process now of um, I've I've got the contract with the publisher, and I've just I'm, I'm hammering out the details. It all happened over the holidays, which was really like crazy because everything is crazy that time of year. Anyway, um, but yeah, so it was all based on a proposal, um, which I think was. Probably one of the most stressful things I've ever done, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like I mean it's so intense to do that and to do it in a very short period of time yeah. um, this whole thing was very expedited i don't and I don't know why or how it just I guess the momentum was there um and I also have I'm really lucky I'm working with an agent in New York who's fantastic, and I'm just so lucky that it that it worked out, and we all connected, and you know some people connected the dots for us, kind of thing it was mm-hmm. very like I just feel very lucky that that happened um so The book is called Flair, and it's part memoir, part sort of investigative journalism. Because my my background as a journalist kind of has lent me to um, always striving to see the bigger picture. So my my story comes into it as you know serving for some of the anecdotes, but I'm also interviewing other women um, who I've connected with who have this condition, looking at you know sort of comparing and contrasting the experience with. One woman who's significantly older, a woman who's who's a little bit younger than I am, um, and also looking at sort of healthcare on a much larger level and sort of seeing where I fit into the bigger picture. Because I did used to work in, in healthcare administration, um, so I actually have a pretty good sense already of, of where I want to go in terms of looking at and providing some, some very much needed commentary on how women are treated in the healthcare system in general. Mm-hmm. And healthcare... As a as a whole is very patriarchal, um, and so even I mean the first surgeon I had, the first woman I worked with um, on this journey, I mean she was female, and you'd think that she would have had you know so much empathy for the situation, but the reality is is that she was part of a system, and she was ultimately held accountable in a system that's very patriarchal. Right. Um, And a lot of the issues that I was confronted with actually go back much further than that. And they go back to medical education and the fact that so much of what's being taught is antiquated and doesn't work. (laughs) So I, I think that I hope that the book can at least, if anything can reach more people than I could physically ever reach. Because when I write things for Medium or I write things for the Huffington Post and I, I have the ability to talk to these women who've read it, who've shared it with their families, who've shared it with their partners and their physicians, I realize that there are so many women that I just want to sit down and have a conversation with, and I'm never going to be able to do that on the the level that I want to. I'm never going to get to all of those you know, 176 million women. I'm, I'm just not. But by writing a book and giving people hopefully actionable information, um, you know, it will let me go to places that I can't physically go to in terms of validating these women and validating their experience and hopefully giving them something tangible that, that they identify with. Because I know as a, as a reader also, there were so many books in my life that were like totems for me that validated my experience in some way. And I just always loved having that physical thing to identify with that have given me that that comfort. Because sometimes, especially when you're dealing with an issue that isn't getting a lot of media attention, it's not getting a lot of research, and that doctors don't understand, and that the people in your life don't understand, sometimes having that book or that movie or that piece of music that you can cling to that gets it, sometimes that makes all the difference. Mm -hmm. And I recognize that. So, I mean, I guess for me, that's, you know, I'm lucky that I'm working with an absolutely Brilliant editor at Nation Books, um, and they're they've acquired the book, so it'll it'll be released from them um, probably next year. It, you know, the year after. Even it's one of those things where when you're doing nonfiction and memoir and something that requires a lot of research, it's all, the time take a while. <laughs> yeah, the timetables are kind of crazy, but I know it's in the right hands, and I couldn't be more pleased to work with them on it. I I'm just so excited that they're excited and that they have the kind of platform that makes this into a much broader issue than just like it's not just a book about women it's a it's a social justice book it's a book about healthcare reform it's a book about Yeah
1: I mean so many of the issues that affect women in the healthcare system are issues that if you zoom out it's they're issues that affect people of color trans people people of you know marginalized communities of all kinds you know it's just these are things that of like all feminist issues affect everyone and you know if we work on them it kind of benefits everybody yeah
0: absolutely absolutely i agree yeah
1: yeah well abby thank you so much for your time and for sharing your story with me this was like a great talk
0: yeah no thank you so much for having me
1: and thank you for listening to in sickness and in health Until next episode, you can find us at InSicknessPod.com, on social media at InSicknessPod, or email me at InSicknessPod at gmail.com. You can find Abby Norman on Twitter at NotAbbyNormal, and if you can take a few moments to rate and review us on iTunes, it would really help out the show. But also, most importantly, don't forget to be excellent to yourselves and each other.